Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with yet another mass shooting in Half Moon Bay, California, in which seven lives were lost just days after a mass shooting in Monterey Park took 11 lives, and before that, six, including a teenage mother and her baby, were shot in a horrific cartel massacre in Goshen, California. So far, just a little over three weeks into the year, there have been a record 39 mass shootings in the United States, which means 2003 is on track to exceed the record 690 mass shootings in 2021. Joining us is John Donahue, a professor of law at Stanford Law School and a research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research. He has written numerous publications on gun control policy and is the author of Shooting Down the More Guns, Less Crime Hypothesis. Then we'll examine the anti-Putin partisan movement inside Russia and Ukraine's use of foreign fighters from the Caucasus, Central Asia and Chechnya, along with displaced Tatars and Turkic-speaking refugees. Joining us is Douglas London, a retired senior CIA operations officer and a professor at Georgetown University's Center for Security Studies. Over the course of his 34 years in the CIA's clandestine service, almost 17 of which were in the foreign field as a recruiter and agent handler, he served in the Middle East, South and Central Asia, and Africa, including three assignments as a chief of station, the president's senior intelligence officer at post, and chief of base in a South Asian conflict zone. He's the author of The Recruiter, Spying and the Lost Art of American Intelligence, and we'll discuss his article at The Hill, How Far Should U.S. Intelligence Go in Supporting Russia's Armed Opposition? Then finally, with the religious right abandoning Trump after he criticized them for being disloyal and not endorsing his third run for the presidency, we'll investigate the alarming growth of spirit warrior Christianity and speak with Catherine Stewart, a journalist and the author of The Good News Club, The Christian Rights Stealth Assault on American Children. Her latest best-selling book is The Power Worshippers, Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism, now out in paperback, and we will discuss her article at the New Republic, The Rise of Spirit Warriors on the Christian Right. And joining us now is John Donahue, a professor of law at Stanford Law School and a research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research. He has written numerous publications on gun control policy and is the author of Shooting Down the More Guns, Less Crime Hypothesis. Welcome to Background Briefing, John Donahue. Good to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us, John. And not far from you at Half Moon Bay yesterday, there was a second mass sh- shooting in California in three days, and that's following 11 people killed at a Lunar New Year event at a dance hall in Monterey Park on Saturday, and then prior to that, six people were murdered, including a teenage mother and her baby, in what is considered a cartel massacre that was last week in the small town of Goshen. So that is bad enough in the California context, but in the national context, there have been 39 mass shootings in the U.S. so far, which is a record at this point. It's only, we're only three weeks into the into the year, after all. And in 2021, 
that was considered the worst year of mass shootings, uh, with 690 mass shootings across 44 states and Washington, D.C., and in 2022, there were 647 mass shootings. So we are on track to break a record. What does that say about the United States? Well, it's a sad story. And, and unfortunately, I've been uh, trying to ring this uh, uh, alarm for, for a while because uh, if, if you don't take steps to address the mass shooting problem in the United States, it, it only gets worse. The the lethality of the weaponry grows every year. Unfortunately, we see one mass shooter is sometimes influenced by another. Uh, and, uh, and many areas in the country are, are actually making things worse by uh, removing restrictions on, on guns. And, and, of course, the U.S. Supreme Court is also joining that bandwagon, unfortunately. So what can be done then? Well, it's it's a struggle right now. There's a battle in the courts. Uh, almost all of the gun safety measures in California are being challenged in the federal courts by the the gun lobby uh, with Second Amendment uh, uh, charges. Uh, and and so uh, the first thing, of course, is to try to protect the measures that New York and California and other states have adopted. But what would really be wise and beneficial as if the federal government could take some action uh, to actually expand federal uh, gun safety measures. Uh, but, but right now, with the incredibly tight stranglehold that the gun lobby has over the Republican Party, uh, it's, it's very hard to get any federal action done. Well, today, President Biden issued a statement quoting even as we await further details on these shootings, we know that the scourge of gun violence across America requires stronger action. I once again urge both chambers of Congress to act quickly and deliver this assault weapons ban to my desk and take action to keep American communities, schools, workplaces and homes safe. So that's falling on dead ears, right, with half the Congress being Republican. Yes, it's... it's uh it's shameful. And of course, we had a federal assault weapon ban in place uh, that was allowed to lapse during the uh, George W. Bush administration in 2004. And it's sort of heartbreaking to think of, of how many of the mass shootings uh, could have been uh, avoided had that uh, federal assault weapon ban remained in place. Um, but, you know, not, not only do we need to reinstate that, but there are other measures that need to be taken as well. And sadly, the American public is very much in favor of many of these measures. But again, uh, the special interest of the, of the gun lobby has, in a sense, perverted democracy so that even measures like uh, uh, uni uh, universal background checks, which are supported by roughly 90 percent of Americans uh, and including a vast majority of NRA members, uh, cannot be adopted because of the uh, the power of the special interests uh, linked with the Republican Party. So in post-truth America, John, is it possible for logic and reason to win? I mean, you mentioned the Supreme Court and the Heller decision pushed through by Scalia turned the whole Second Amendment on its head. The Second Amendment says the 
the state shall have well-regulated militias being necessary for the security of a free state and the citizens' right to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Now, we are neither free or secure. We're not in a free state and we're not in a secure state because we can't go to the movies, we can't go to the mall, we can't go to schools, we can't go to church without the threat of being killed. So the predicate to the Second Amendment should be brought back. Is there any way to bring it back? Because the citizens' right to keep and bear arms has led to this kind of insanity, whereas the rest of us, the broader society, are living in fear in order for a minority of people to have the right to strut around with an assault rifle, which makes no sense. Yeah, it is a a puzzling development, especially since if you look back 40 years ago, you know, Republicans uh, had a much more sensible attitude toward guns. And even uh, John Paul Stevens, a former Republican appointee and a lifelong Republican, uh, when he left the Supreme Court, he said, uh, during my 34 years on the Supreme Court, the single worst decision was the Heller decision. Um, and, and of course, uh, in the recent June decision in Bruin, the Supreme Court expanded the reach of Heller and, and essentially uh, has taken a posture that uh, really makes no sense. And uh, it's hard to believe that the very wise founders of this country would endorse uh, the, the recent uh, Supreme Court decision. Uh, so, so it's a it's a perilous time right now. Uh, the the one silver lining behind the massively growing mass shooting problem is that even this Supreme Court may start having second thoughts when they're asked to uh, overturn assault weapon ban in in California or the restrictions on high capacity magazines uh, because we we really need those. And he, even though. California has recently experienced this very unfortunate uh, series of mass shootings. Uh, It has uh, been able to reduce them below the level of states like Texas and Florida, which have much more uh, uh, permissive gun laws. Um, and, And anything that would restrict the power of states like New York and California to, uh, uh, to promote these gun safety measures would be profoundly unwise. But of course, as we've seen in some of these mass shootings in California, the guns come in from Nevada or Arizona. So federal legislation is much more helpful. uh, And and hopefully uh, at some point, and and I actually predict this will happen at some point, because I think the mass shooting problem will finally get so bad that the public rises up and, and the Republican Party will have to uh, you know, change course, but but we're not there yet. Is there a possibility, though, and you're at a law school, you're an educator, John, is it possible that we can start an, an education program in this country and somehow get the cooperation of the media, the movies and the television, which shows guns as the means by which problems are solved, as opposed to creating problems and pain and death? I mean, yeah. you know, in other words, the kids have to understand how dangerous guns are, and they also have to understand that this is not a way to settle a problem and that somehow you've got to change the culture, don't you? Yes. 
Yeah, very much so. And, and unfortunately, uh, the, the drumbeat of misinformation from the gun lobby is extreme and really filters down into the public discourse. I mean, you hear things like uh, the, uh, you know, the only thing that stops a bad man with a gun is a good guy with a gun. And of course, it's a not true. Some of the recent mass shootings, including the one just this week in Southern California, it was a unarmed citizen who wrestled the gun away from uh, the, the would-be mass shooter um, who had already killed 11 people by that time. Um, and, and so almost everything that comes out from the NRA or the gun lobby is either completely wrong or misleading. And yet those those bits of misinformation are repeated. And even the Supreme Court uh, judges who who ruled in striking down New York's uh, restrictions on gun carrying, which had been in place for 109 years, uh, they have cited some of this misinformation. So that is very troubling. Uh, clearly, education uh, is necessary, and, and hopefully support from the, the, the media and the public can get out the truth against such a barrage of misinformation from the gun lobby and, and often from Republican politicians. And a lot of mass shootings happen in the workplace, as is the case uh, with Monday's shooting in Harpoon Bay, where yep. the shooter worked at a mushroom farm. He went there first and shot four people, and then he went to a trucking company that he was familiar with and shot three more. And then he went to sat in his car in a parking lot of a sheriff's substation until he was arrested. Yep. So is there any way for companies and workplaces to educate people and to start flagging people when they feel grudges against their fellow workers? I mean, it's, it seems to be, I don't know what the statistics are, but I think probably the majority of mass shootings take place in the workplace. Yeah, certainly a, a large number of them are, are workplace violence, and and we we've seen this, uh, uh, you know, in in the Bay Area there was a, a terrible mass shooting in, in San Jose a, a few years back uh, uh, at at a municipal transit authority, uh, and and so you know a couple of things I think are important, uh, sort of monitoring. Uh, the, the workplace to get a sense of who might be, uh, you know, experiencing some sort of mental health breakdown or troubling behavior uh, and, and trying to get guns away from those people would be a, 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 an important first step. But it's also true that we, even if they are going to have access to a gun, it makes a difference what kind of gun they have access to. I, I remember back to the uh, assassination attempts on Ronald Reagan in 1980, and uh, he was, uh, or 81, he was attacked by a guy with a, uh, uh, you know, a revolver, and he, he fired six bullets, hit four people, none of them died. Today, he would have a Glock pistol at the least. Uh, and, and maybe, you know, be able to shoot 17 times instead of just six and roughly the same amount of time. And the pistol itself would be far more damaging. So, so we just have a greater capacity to inflict massive lethal damage rapidly. Uh, and, and so steps need to be taken to curtail that and to just uh, 
cheap guns out of out of uh, the hands of dangerous individuals. Again, the Supreme Court decision was so misguided in sort of saying, well, what could be wrong if a law-abiding citizen has a gun? But you see these recent mass shootings. Some of these are, are people in their 60s or 70s, uh, and they might have been law-abiding citizens for many years, but suddenly have uh, uh, you know a mental health uh, issue. And, and guns should be taken away from these people. So much more efforts needs to be made to protect the public in this realm than simply uh, wait for the mass shooting to happen. Well, John Donahue, I thank you very much for joining us here. I'm sorry for the circumstances of this conversation, but as the statistics make clear, this is the 39th mass shooting so far this year. We're only three weeks into this year. This year will probably be a record, and and the last uh, record was bad enough in 2021. That was the worst year where there were 690 uh, mass shootings across 44 states in Washington, D.C., and prior to that there were 647 mass shootings in 2022. So 2023 is certainly shaping out to be a year, that year of shame in terms of senseless slaughter of Americans by Americans. I thank you for joining us, yep. John. Thank you very much. That's an important topic. And again, I've been speaking with John Donahue, who is a professor of law at Stanford Law School and a research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research. He's written numerous publications on gun control policy and is the author of Shooting Down the More Guns, Less Crime Hypothesis. We're going to take a brief station break and back examining the anti-Putin partisan movement inside Russia and Ukraine's use of foreign fighters from the Caucasus, Central Asia, and Chechnya, along with displaced Tatars and Turkic-speaking refugees. There is no one to turn to And what will you do When the blood of America Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now are Douglas London, a retired senior CIA operations officer and a professor at Georgetown University's Center for Security Studies. Over the course of 34 years in the CIA's clandestine service, almost 17 of which were in the foreign field as a recruiter and agent handler, he served in the Middle East, South and Central Asia, and Africa, including three assignments as Chief of Station, the President's Senior Intelligence Officer at Post, and Chief of Base in a South Asian conflict zone. He's the author of The Recruiter, Spying, and the Lost Art of American Intelligence, and has an article at The Hill, How Far Should U.S. Intelligence Go in Supporting Russia's Armed Opposition? Welcome to Background Briefing, Douglas London. 
Nice to be back with you, Ian. Thank you. Well, thanks for joining us, Douglas. And I'm sure a lot of our listeners aren't aware that there is an armed opposition to Russia, both within Russia. I'm not sure how big the partisan movement is that's in Russia. Maybe somewhat exaggerated, but still, it's got to be a problem for Putin. But there are a number of Russians and also Chechens and others, Tatars, etc., fighting for Ukraine. So give us a sense of what kind of numbers we're talking about. Ukraine at the beginning of the, of the Russian invasion after February 24th reported having 20,000 foreign fighters amongst their uh, legion pool. Now, that's March of this year. But the dynamics have to go beyond just those who are fighting for the Ukrainians. The Russians themselves have put a great number of foreign fighters or ethnic minorities in the field on their side. Putin has tried to avoid uh, putting the pressure on his base of support, which is really the more urban and affluent Russian communities in the likes of Moscow and St. Petersburg and their major cities. So their mobilization is really focused on Turkic speakers, uh, Asian speakers, members of Russian minorities who live out in remote and rural regions. While they're fighting for Russians now, these are largely aggrieved communities in Russia. Those who are not getting real national resources, real development, because they're less meaningful to Putin, except for the territory they occupy. And I think their exposure to the war, even fighting for Russia, and perhaps because they're fighting for Russia, and often being used as cannon fodder in these engagements, really could stir up some of these historic divisions and be something that comes home to roost. And that doesn't even count the number of Central Asians that are fighting either for Russia or for the Ukrainians, many of whom also have grievances with Putin and Russia over the years. So does that mean that when these soldiers come home after seeing their comrades slaughtered and not being properly supported and supplied, does that mean that they turn against the government? I mean, we know that the prisoners that Prigozhin recruited are dying in droves, but because they, they're pardoned, presumably they will come home, at least the, the survivors. So is that a problem for Putin? I think we could look at the foreign fighters who've been involved in conflicts over the last 30 years, which have predominantly been foreign fighters uh, going on jihadist causes. We could look in the 90s and we see what happened in the Balkans with Muslims from variously around the world, some directed from extremist organizations, to fight on the behalf of the Bosnian Muslims. We could look at, uh, even before that, those foreign fighters, the Arab Mujahideen, which came from all parts of the world to fight in Afghanistan against the then Soviets. And we also see the conflict in Syria and Iraq and those fighters who fought on behalf of the Islamic State. Now, a number of those went fighting for a cause, but while they were there, they became radicalized. And while I'm not suggesting these are going to become Islamic radicals among the foreign fighters, very few of whom are necessarily Islamic, though there are groups of them, they will come home to seeing the repression that their own people have faced. And like a lot of the foreign fighters of these past three decades, decide to take up the cause of revolution in their own home state. So I think that's really an issue that Putin is gambling on, where he's looking for the near-term re, you know, value of getting these minorities who are not really going to upset his base, his political base, if you would. But I think they're going to bring home radical ideas. And I think also the communities they leave behind will see how their sons and their brothers and fathers are being used by Putin for a cause that really does very little for them. So just to pull back and, and look at what 
Putin's best options are, since he's obviously in trouble, and but he is planning on a massive spring offensive from what we understand, and, and is even considering another mass mobilization, even though the last one was unpopular and he's quite aware of that. To my mind, Douglas London, Putin's best play might well be uh, an active measures campaign to influence the Republican House to cut funds to Ukraine. What do you think of that possibility? I certainly think he's already been doing that. I think certainly as we were coming to the midterm elections, Russian intelligence services and their cyber activities were at least amplifying themes that sadly at times the Russian yeah, the American GRP was advertising itself about America first and looking to our own southern border and not investing so much in Ukraine, casting this as foreign aid and charity that was better used at home. I think there's certainly clear indicators that he was already doing that and his services were doing that. Certainly, he will continue to do that. The Russian services are always very active uh, in these degrees. In fact, there's recently been reports tying Russia to this far right movement, I think it's called the Russian Imperial Youth, uh, with a series of letter bombs that were conducted against uh, the Spanish Prime Minister's office, I believe the Ukrainian and American embassies, and some other Spanish officials, as what's read as a signal from Putin that if you continue to support Ukraine in this conflict, that more harm could be done. So whereas the Russians don't do particularly well on strategic intelligence, and I think that's clear in the failed calculus that Putin used in believing his troops would do well, they'd be seen as liberators, and the Ukrainians wouldn't put up much of a struggle, and the West would do little more than protest loudly. Uh, they are very active and very persistent in active measures, which includes disinformation, influence operations, as well as sabotage and assassination campaigns. So already Russian propaganda over Dnipro, where the Russian missile hit an apartment building, and I think 40-plus people died, that's already over here influencing elements of the American right, like Tucker Carlson on Fox, and elements of the American left as well, that it was a Ukrainian missile, a false flag operation. And then you've got the fact that now the deputy defense minister has been fired for corruption, that plays into the Russian narrative that has traction over here, right? Particularly amongst the sort of pro-Putin caucus in the in the House, that why are we giving money to these people if they're so corrupt? Ukraine has to certainly balance um, their messaging, and indeed the messaging from Russia, which we've seen picked up by the American right, is that we can't trust the Ukrainians with the money, with the material, these weapons are going to fall in the hands of people who are enemies of the United States or, or be used for profit. So Zelensky has you know, uh, an important job to make sure that he meets the expectations of those who are providing support and uh, addressing issues of corruption, because it's clear Ukraine has a history of corruption, as, as does Russia and all the, the former Soviet states. Uh, but indeed, this is, this is fodder for the Russian disinformation campaign, as well as political campaigns uh, in America on on the part of the right. The the suggestion that this was a Ukrainian missile and a false flag, or even allowing for the possibility that it was a Ukrainian um, counter-fire missile going after Russian incoming missiles that did the damage. The truth is, the reality of forensics is such that it's clear to establish whose weapon, whose missiles these were. We see the Iranian drones, and despite denials by Iran and, and the, the Russian government, the components of those drones and the letters and the writing clearly point back to Iran. 
but yet there's been such an effective job done by this disinformation that undermines the credibility of expertise. It undermines certainly the credibility of the press and even American institutions. So people are going to listen to whoever they choose to believe, whether or not they're preaching the reality or preaching fabrication. So that will be a continuing effort on the part of the Russians, and they're doing it in an unfortunate complimentary campaign with the American right. And we'll have to see some uh, maybe perhaps continued declassification of good intelligence on the part of the United States and others, as well as good forensics. And we do see excellent open source forensics campaigns being launched by nonprofit groups, NGOs, and the press that does sort of counter the propaganda that Russia is using. So in terms of direct U.S. involvement, Ambassador Burns, the head of the CIA, recently met with Zelensky, and apparently Burns is one of the people that Zelensky really trusts because he gave such good intelligence, one, about the fact that Putin was going to invade, and two, that the Ukrainians should defend the Antonov base, which was where the Russians wanted to drop their parachutists in to capture Kiev and possibly kill Zelensky. So he apparently he listens to Burns, but others on the American side have been weighing in on Zelensky and his generals saying, you know, why are you wasting all this effort and manpower on Bakhmut? Why don't you plan an offensive in the South? So what's your sense of that, Douglas? I don't think the the Ukrainians are blind to the strategic uh, impact on the battlefield. But again, this is not just being fought as a military campaign. It's a political campaign. And I would interpret uh, their commitment, Ukraine's commitment to some of these locations, which may not have as much strategic value as having political value and concern over the appearance of losing ground, concern over the appearance, not just to outsiders who are providing aid, because it's been clear that a lot of the support from the West, the number of systems and the more sophisticated systems have come only as a consequence of Ukrainian military success. So there has to be some calculus that Ukrainians are thinking, oh, my goodness, if we allow the appearance even of Russian victories, that might cost us aid. But also political support at home. I think for Zelensky, it's important to at least have the appearance that the Ukrainians continue to be on the march, on the move, and that if anything, they just need more time, more support, more military uh, assistance to press their offensive as opposed to still fighting on the defensive side. So while military planners and on the U.S. strategically looking at the battlefield going, well, you know, the cost versus gain of what you're doing doesn't have military strategic advantage. I think there's also political reasoning. And that's a harder component for American military strategists to understand and even interpret. I would imagine the U.S. intel community is explaining that context to decision makers, which is why you hear less of that coming, I believe, from the likes of the White House. So what do you think that was going on in terms of Putin's? I mean, Putin's rejected the uh, Ukrainian offer to peace talks through the United Nations, and their rejection was just totally absurd with that ludicrous propaganda that they're fighting the fascists. Uh, when in fact Russia is looking more and more like a fascist state. So there's no chance of a diplomatic solution. Putin is invested in another round of uh, what he tried to do initially, and he's apparently going to build up his forces in Belarus and attack on all fronts sometime in the next month or so. Do you think that that is in the cards? 
there's all this discussion about giving Putin an off-ramp, giving him a face-saving accident. That's just not how it works with Putin and the way he looks at the world. The more he sees overtures like that coming at him suggests to him uh, a sense of weakness uh, against which he's going to double down. When Putin needs to withdraw, he's going to find his own face-saving exit. I see it very unlikely that either side can achieve a outright military victory. I don't see Russia, even if they have some increased success, if they mobilize, and we, we hear numbers of up to 700,000 troops, as badly trained as they might be, but even if Russia is able to make some military progress, and I, and I think that's questionable, they're not going to vanquish Ukraine. Ukraine is simply not going to give up and surrender. They really can't. I mean, it's an existential crisis. Even if assistance from the West drops down, I think Ukraine will fight till it's an insurgency and keep doing what they can to bleed the Russians. On the other hand, the Russians aren't going to stop, and Ukraine isn't going to be able to take over Russia, for goodness sakes, even if they can secure Crimea in some amazing opportunity if it should arise and they have the right weapons. I don't see Russia giving up unless Putin decides it has become too costly. Putin's going to be looking at his calculus and be looking at the cost and the gain. And if he sees a true threat to his preservation of power, that's when he's going to you know, offer some olive branch, offer some face-saving means to make this look like he's achieved his objectives and now can end this military operation, having never called it a war. But I don't really see either party getting an ultimate military advantage. I think it's going to be more of at what point do the political cost of the fighting and the, and the losses that either side are taking require them to make additional concessions. Those concessions aren't going to be likely those that they're, they're profiting from something that's offered, but what they see in their, their own best interests. And I, I think what we might have ultimately is what we had in the Balkans in the 1990s, sort of an example of the Dayton Accords. That war, that conflict never really ended. We see it today in the hostility and aggression from Serbia and threats to Kosovo. It was really, they had no choice at the time. They were simply going to take losses that were unsustainable. Dayton Accords weren't so much a peace negotiation, but a suspension of hostilities. And I think that's the most likely near-term outcome as a means of stopping the hostilities in Ukraine. So given the scenario that you just outlined, why then are the Germans, why is Schultz uh, dragging his heels? It doesn't make any sense in supplying or allowing the Leopard tanks that the Danes and the Finns and the Poles want to give to Ukraine. And, and of course, Zelensky's been desperately asking for it. There's competing issues for the Germans, and I, I don't necessarily sympathize since I would certainly like to see them more forthcoming. But the Germans do have a, a really innate resistance to being part of a broader conflict. And the German uh, government, uh, clearly Olaf Scholz, has a history of seeing Russia as an important and critical partner for Germany. So he's looking at the future as well. He's looking at a degree of support for supporting Ukraine, but with limits. I don't think that the German public has given the German government a blank check and said, oh, we've got to do absolutely everything we can. There's certainly sympathies there. And there's also this long-term view of thinking about after the war, what happens the day after hostilities are suspended? How can we resurrect this very important, in Germany's eyes, you know, political and economic relationship that we have with Russia? So I think it's, it's difficult. And I think 
for the United States, we've seen the Germans actually do more than probably some expected them to do at the start of this conflict. And we'd certainly like to see them do more. But I think that they're looking for signs that we're going to support and meet whatever they do. You know, uh, the Germans had even talked about patriots, I think, even before the United States did with some limitations, because they would have to send their own troops with the Patriot batteries they had, and they don't want to get caught in the conflict. So if the United States itself is at the point where they're saying, okay, we're willing to put forward the, the M1 tank, our battle tanks, then I think that will put more pressure on the Germans to free up their own Leopard tanks. And, and I think we've seen some increased flexibility simply in their willingness now to allow countries that have their tanks to re-export them to Ukraine, which uh, would be a start. So just in closing, what do you think of this scenario that I recently interviewed an author who I think it was actually an article at The Hill on the notion that when a state loses its monopoly on violence, then you have warlords, etc., taking over and the ultimate situation, you know, we saw it in Lebanon and now we see it in Haiti where, you know, armed gangs take over. The, the notion that that could happen in Russia seems pretty far-fetched, but the fact that you've got the Prigozhin private army, you've got Hadirov's private army that does report to Putin's National Guard, but nevertheless, and, and Shoigu's got his own patriot private army as well. So is that something that we should be looking at, the notion that when you talked about how Putin might lose control, how much does he control Prigozhin? and Hadirov. As a good intel officer, I'll never say never to anything. Uh, there's degrees of confidence. <laughs> I think I would say there's there's a low probability of that happening. It's not impossible. I think Prohoshin goes at uh, at Putin's blessing. I think Putin uses Prohoshin and all of his bombast and hyperbolic comments and such like that for effect. He needs a relief valve for angst in Russia over the poor performance of the military. He needs some way to have criticism be aired, but not against him. So I think Prohoshin is on a leash, and I, I think he's been very useful to Putin, though there might be consequences. Prohoshin, remember, is also a very important tie-in to Russian organized crime. That's where Prohoshin comes from. And that's how Putin got a great deal of his start and support coming out of St. Petersburg in the 90s, was you know collaboration with organized crime. So I think he's juggling a lot of balls. And that's where the danger could become. That's where the low probability that such a, an, an outcome could occur is realistic because he's juggling a lot of balls. He doesn't have a lot of people to whom he's delegating authority. And it gets a little strained at times at the top if you're doing everything yourself and you're stretched out as he is. So I think there is room for instability in Russia based on these various power centers that he's created quite deliberately to try to offset any one group and his own army. Because you got to remember, Putin is a KGB 1970s era Cold War intelligence officer. He has no trust for his own military. The KGB was very much focused on spying on their own army, which they believe was the, the greatest threat to the Communist Party. That's ingrained in Putin. So he's going to continue to do this juggling act. Uh, but there is a there is a danger. There's a danger of fissures and fissures and factors that could at some point go beyond his control. But for the time being, I'd say the probability is low. Well, Douglas London, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thanks as always, Ian. It's been a pleasure. 
And again, I've been speaking with Douglas London, who's a retired senior CIA operations officer and a professor at Georgetown University's Center for Security Studies. Over the course of his 34 years in the CIA's clandestine service, almost 17 of which was in the foreign field as a recruiter and agent handler, he served in the Middle East, South and Central Asia and Africa, including three assignments as chief of station, the president's senior intelligence officer at post, and the chief of base in a South Asian conflict zone. And he's the author of The Recruiter, Spying and the Lost Art of American Intelligence. And he has an article at The Hill, How Far Should U.S. Intelligence Go in Supporting Russia's Armed Opposition? We're going to take a brief station break. We're back examining the alarming growth of spirit warrior Christianity. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Catherine Stewart, who's a journalist whose recent work has appeared in The New York Times, The Nation, The Atlantic, and The Guardian. She's the author of The Good News Club, The Christian Right Stealth Assault on American Children. And her latest book is the award-winning The Power Worshippers, Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism, now out in paperback. And she also has an article at the New Republic, The Rise of Spirit Warriors on the Christian Right. Welcome to Background Briefing, Catherine Stewart. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thanks for joining us, Catherine. Just in terms of of the politics of the Christian right, I just wanted to touch on it, given that uh, earlier this week, Trump, in an interview, said that evangelical leaders are showing signs of disloyalty towards him because they haven't endorsed him uh, in the 2024 campaign. And then Franklin uh, Graham has come out and saying, and he was a big booster of Trump, of course, uh, in 2016 and 2020. uh, And he's come out and saying he's not going to endorse Trump, as has Robert uh, Jeffress, uh, who was also a big Trump booster. And he uh, he just had a big rally with uh, Mike Pence and thanked Mike Pence for saving the Constitution on January the 6th. And incidentally, today we learn that classified documents were found at Mike Pence's home in Indiana. So what do you make of the politics on the religious right? They seem to be gravitating to support Ron DeSantis, even though he, of course, is Catholic. Well, Ron DeSantis may be Catholic, but he's doing everything he needs to do to win the support of uh, the leadership of the Christian nationalist movement, and he'll 
absolutely give them everything they want the way Trump did. He's um, behaving, frankly, like an authoritarian. He's litigating, instead of solving the problems of his state, he's litigating what he calls woke culture and focusing on sort of issues that, frankly, don't have a, a ton of relevance to most American families. He's uh, censoring books. He's uh, trying to demonstrate his so-called pro-life bona fides. He's even um, uh, citing biblical passages that are intended to operate almost like his messaging or dog whistle to some of the more radical elements of the movement. This is why Trump is calling him Ron DeSanctimonious. Right before the election, Ron DeSantis's campaign actually re released an ad claiming that God chose Ron DeSantis in order to save the country. I don't know if you've seen this ad, but it's really something. Um, it said, you know, on the eighth day, God chose a fighter, something like that, and, you know, promoted Ron DeSantis as a sort of kingly uh, uh, chosen person by God. And here's the thing. The Christian nationalist movement leadership delivers such a large and reliable slice of the Republican vote that anyone who wants to have a career, uh, certainly in the national level and very often on the state level, uh, and who's a Republican, knows that they have to give these leaders what they want in order to get that slice of the vote. So I think a lot of the religious right leaders do not want um, Donald Trump. They think he has too much baggage, and they'd rather go for someone like Ron DeSantis, who's frankly um, uh, a bit clever, uh, perhaps comes with a bit less baggage, but is still going to do what they want at the end of the day. He's going to appoint right-wing justices to the uh, courts. He's going to give them the policies that they want, the privileges that they want, um, and of course, the access to public money that they're very much after. So let's talk about spirit warrior Christianity, which uh, DeSantis is embracing. He said, quote, put on the full armor of God, stand firm against the left's schemes. And these schemes of the left have reached all kinds of bizarre notions in the minds of Christian spirit warriors. They believe there's a demonic portal that's opened above the White House. That's right. You know, look, there's kind of, I think let's pull back for a minute and talk about the fact that religion in America is evolving. It's not a static thing. Um, I spend a lot of time looking at the religious right in America. And within that group, there's frankly been a substantial shift in the incre uh, direction of increased, I would say, militancy and support for authoritarianism. And um, some of the new religious movements, such as right-wing Pentecostalism and neo-charismatic movements, um, are completely identified with this militancy and support for authoritarianism. And, um, you know, there's a group called the New Apostolic Reformation, uh, and there are other new charismatic groups. But what we're really talking about is not any particular denomination or collection of denominations, but a certain style of religion and a, sh a shared language. And it even shows up among some uh, right-wing Catholics like Ron DeSantis or Mike Flynn, who identifies as a Catholic, or some right-wing Presbyterians and Baptists or non-denominational Christians and others. So and Bolsonaro, uh, right? He's a Catholic. Absolutely. So this kind of intensification of verbal warfare and references to spiritual warfare is very closely connected 
to shifts in the Christian nationalist movement's messaging and outreach. I, in over the past 15 years, I've been attending um, religious right conferences and strategy meetings and gatherings. And it, in, in recent years, this shift has been very much in evidence. So this past year, I attended the Road to Majority Conference. It's an annual conference sponsored by Ralph Reed's Faith and Freedom Coalition. It took place in Tennessee, and there were two sessions on Seven Mountains Dominionism, the idea that the so-called right-thinking Christian should dominate um, and seize control of all the so-called mountains or molders of cultures to, you know, what they call take dominion back from Satan. And look, for many years, folks who openly endorsed Seven Mountains Dominionism were nowhere near these major conferences of the Christian right. These kinds of ideas were considered too militant and, and too extreme and perhaps heretical. But these days, they are a reg regular feature of a lot of these types of conferences. So there's also a component, is there not, in terms of these right-wing militias, like the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys, aren't they also somehow dabbling in spirit spirit warfare, I guess is the way to put it. Absolutely. You know, for a long time, some of these right-wing militia groups um, and white nationalist groups weren't, some of them had a sort of religious rhetoric that they used, a kind of, um, you know, religious ideology that was very much part of what they did. But I'm thinking about groups like the Proud Boys. They were not particularly a religious group. And all of a sudden, look, Trump, the movement pre you know pre-existed Trump, but he gave it rocket fuel. He really um, gave it a lot of power. And I think a lot of these groups recognized the power uh, of exploiting religion. And all of a sudden, the Proud Boys started adopting much more overtly religious language. So what is their militant end here? I mean, we know their religious philosophy is certainly not rooted in the Bible. It's if anything, it's rooted in kind of Victorian English onward Christian soldiers kind of Christianity, isn't it? Well, if you look at the roots of where this comes from, it's really about um, dominionism, a kind of authoritarian form of order. Um, you know, movement leaders want three things. It's very clear they want power and access, political access. They want... Um, policies that privilege certain approved groups in society and that um, sort of direct contempt toward people who are not seen as seen as conforming the sort of inside insider versus outsider game. And they want access to both private money and public money. And uh, really, it's it's a game that's all about power. And that's that's where it all really comes from. We can see really deep roots in our in our society in America. We can actually see uh, roots of this in the sort of pro-slavery theologians, uh, such as leaders of the Southern Presbyterian Church, who actually argued for um, they said, you know, that that slavery was scriptural and that this was part of God's established order. And they cast those who were arguing for equality and racial justice yeah. as heretical and as demonic and satanic and as, as frankly, uh, socialist and communist. They were like very, um, uh, I would say, the, the sort of segregationists uh, who who's followed them said that um, if you were supporting desegregation, you were a socialist and a communist and godless and satanic and all that. 
But so, you know, sort of to trace the roots of this in our own society is would would take quite some time. But this is not remotely unique to America. This is a kind of situation that we see all over the world when you have leaders like Vladimir Putin in Russia or um, let's not just look at Christianity, let's look at Modi in India, or let's took it, look at the leaders in Iran, when these uh, leaders bind themselves very tightly to ultra-conservative religious figures in their own countries in order to consolidate a more authoritarian form of political power. We rightly recognize this as religious nationalism, and they do it um, to sort of, they do this sort of you know, bubble wrapping themselves in sanctimony in order to guard against any investigation of their corruption, um, guard against any investigation of the abuses they're 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 perpetrating against their own people. But we've seen uh, this spirit warrior Christianity already in many ways capture countries in Central and South America. In Brazil, it's a powerful part of the support behind Bolsonaro who narrowly lost in the last election. Guatemala is quite rife, is it not, in Guatemala? Absolutely. So are we becoming more like, as you say in the, at the end of your article, let me just quote it, religion in America is starting to look more like religion in Brazil and Guatemala because America in some aspects is starting to resemble Brazil and Guatemala, increasingly unequal, bitterly divided, corrupt, rife with disinformation and unstable. That's true. Um, you know, a lot of people talk about political polarization in America, and they say that they note that we're, we're polarized as, as never never before. And uh, the implication is that, um, you know, both sides are at fault. But there is one political party in our country that is really trying to promote conspiracism and disinformation. That is, um, you know, they know if you can separate a large number of people from the facts, you can control them. You can control their vote much more easily. And it also makes it harder for the country to come together and tackle our, our real challenges, you know, the challenges that the bread and butter issues that matter to most American families. But um, for many of these so-called spirit warriors, they're promoting a kind of political chaos. And the chaos is the point. It makes a country less governable and, and less rational, and that less rational, and that clears the way for an authoritarian leader who can step up and like a strong man who can step in and say, I alone can fix it. Well, Catherine, you're almost describing the Freedom Caucus that uh, is the tail that wags the dog in terms of controlling the House uh, since McCarthy sold his soul bit by bit to the point he has nothing left to these right-wing radicals of the, uh, that you describe. And they wrap themselves in religion, do they not? The Marjorie Taylor Greens, etc. Absolutely. They absolutely do. And they're like deeply irrational and they're promoting irrationalism among their followers. Sometimes you have to ask yourself, how much of it do they believe? But in, in a way, it doesn't matter what they personally believe. Uh, we can't, I think most of us, <laughs> I uh, don't really think that Trump was, you know, there studying the Bible every night or, uh, you know, really believing all that. He he recognized that it was incredibly useful in exploiting the base. But it has a kind of QAnon feel to it when they talk about demonic portals 
opening above the White House. I mean, mm-hmm. that's a bit like this idea that the Democratic Party are all drinking babies' blood and are, uh, are pedophiles. I mean, it's about as loony as that, isn't it? It's true. Listen, if you can persuade a large number of people that they are uh, in a literal battle between absolute good and absolute evil and the consequences of political loss are too apocalyptic to ignore and that they're, you know, they have a, an incredibly important role to play. It just, you know, they'll justify any actions, no matter how radical. I, I think about January 6th and I think about the fact that a lot of the people who stormed the Capitol had been really led to believe that the election was stolen. Um, and so they were, pers- you know, prepared to perpetrate these incredibly radical actions and call themselves patriots, even as they're storming the Capitol and threatening to kill elected leaders and and trashing our electoral system, which is the, the pillar of our democracy. But the that sort of lie of the stolen election is really now at the heart of the Republican Party. And the uh, spirit warrior... Christianity is at the heart of Pentecostalism, isn't it? And there are 600 million Pentecostals worldwide, which is a quarter of all Christians. So this is not a fringe movement. No, I mean, we have to remember that Pentecostalism in America is very diverse. And there are large numbers, for instance, of black Pentecostal churches that are very much committed to equality, racial justice, um, and a sort of ethos of, of the common good. But this type of irrationalism, um, you know, like not everyone caught up in um, the fervor for spirit warrior types of religion uh, comes down on the same side of the political aisle. But the style of religion is ripe for political exploitation, mainly from the right, you know, because it's um, it's a way of sort of directing a lot of people's sort of anxieties about their lives and telling them that they alone, they, they have an incredibly important role to play but then this sort of um, uh, religious entrepreneurs sort of seize upon that and have used it to draw people into these sort of radical right movements. Well, Catherine Stewart, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Great to speak with you, as always. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And this program is available for podcasting at backgroundbriefing.org, where you can sign up for our email updates, as well as subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you like this program, you can help us reach more listeners by taking a moment to rate and review us on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do share the program with friends and family and colleagues on Twitter and Facebook. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now.